Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Um, okay. So I guess we should get started. Time for the intro. Uh, this is Civic Zero, the only podcast. Uh, this is Civic Zero, a legislative guide to, or sorry, a comprehensive guide to why the legislative branch sucks. Uh, part two. Um, and yeah, let's uh, get started. Chapter 12 is called Political Ideology. Um, before I start, I would like to point out that there is a graph on the page before uh, 12.1, and I would just like to point out that Donald Trump is on the same um, x-axis, sorry, y-axis, as Hitler. So And, and um, Stalin. He's and in between Stalin. Hitler and Stalin. Yeah, yeah. And then Ted, Ted Cruz ex- is exactly on Stalin in yes, terms of authoritarianness. Yep. Um, and actually, in terms of economic right or economic left, I think the closest person to Hitler is Obama in 2008. <laughs> and then... Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> so if you combine Donald Trump and 2008 Obama, you get yeah, very close to Hitler, about where Jacob Visconti landed, but very close to Hitler. Yeah. So the, the authoritarian slash libertarian views of Donald Trump plus the economic left or economic right views of Obama fuse to be Hitler. Yes. Something about well, okay. that. Who is who is the furthest libertarian? Because I support them the most. Da- the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama. Okay. Well, I support but the even Dalai that Lama. Per- there's nobody that close, that far libertarian on this on this chart. Yeah. Okay, well then I will, uh, after that, I will go ahead and start on 10.1, party ideology. I am very uncomfortable in my seat, that's kind of a problem. So, all right, 12.1, party ideology. In the United States, or sorry, not even reading right. The United States is a diverse society, and public policies reflect the attitudes and beliefs of citizens who participate in, po- in the political process. Because, of, because the United States is made up of so many different groups, policymakers must balance competing ideologies. Some people uh, favor polit- politic. Some people favor policies establishing order and stability over politics promoting individual liberties. Others favor the protection of liberty over policies to promote public order. Some people want the government to regulate moral behavior. Mm, no, sorry. Uh, some people want the government to inscri- enforce strict codes of moral behavior while others oppose uh, government efforts to regulate moral, moral behavior. The Republican and Democratic parties have different approaches in balancing, balancing these interests. As we have seen in previous chapters, debates over social and economic issues such as welfare policies and immigration reform uh, reflect these party differences. Party ideology refers to a party's philosophy about the proper role of government, and it sets positions on major issues. Party identification is an individual's attachment attachment to a political party. The Republican Party is associated with conservatism, an an ideology favoring more control of social behavior, fewer regulations on business, and less government intervention in the economy. The Democratic Party is associated with liberalism, an ideology supporting less government control over the social behavior and more regulation on on businesses and the economy. Uh, libertarianism, a third ideology, favors very little government regulation intervention beyond protecting private property and individual liberty. And we covered in libertarianism more in depth in our uh, podcast, Civic Zero, The Sanders Cut.
the Republicans or yeah, the Republicans and Democrats have different ideologies about how to balance competing values of liberty and order in addressing social and economic issues. Republicans favored the liberty to form a business relative relatively free of government regulation. Um, this reflects a trust of the in the marketplace and a mistrust in government. By con- by contrast, uh, Democrats favor the liberty of sexual and marital privacy, uh, and this in turn reflects a mistrust of tyranny of the majority uh, and a need for government to protect minority rights. Likewise, the Republicans seek order-related immigration, wanting to preserve national or traditional American values, while Democrats favor less strict immigration policies. In contrast, uh, well, they uh, less. Im- less strict immigration policies. In contrast, Democrats seek order regarding uh, gun regulation out of mistrust of abuse from unrestricted gun use, um, but Republicans are less supportive of gun regulations for favoring the individual liberty to own a firearm. Both parties seek order as well as liberty. They just see the issues differently. When, have it, when balancing the uh, competing values of order and liberty, Republicans favor a conservative ideology uh, supporting stronger punishments for offenders, while Democrats are more concerned with liberal policies protecting the civil liberties of the accused. The Republican Party has adopted a pro-life platform supporting the position that abortion should be banned. The Democratic Party is, is pro-choice, supporting the idea that the decision to have an abortion is, the right, is part of the right to privacy. Conservative and liberal views about privacy differ depending on the type of government activity used to restrict privacy. Uh, As shown in figure 12.3, in 2014, during the Obama administration, conservatives were less likely to support the NSA surveillance of phone and internet data than liberals. Uh, The parties also differ on economic issues, with Democrats favoring tax increases for the wealthy, while Republicans favor tax cuts for businesses. Political ideology also impacts the views of property rights and government regulations. Democrats tend to favor more regulation of businesses in the public interest, while Republicans prefer fewer regulations on, pre- on business practices. Republicans tend to favor allowing individuals to use their property as they see fit, while Democrats favor rules that restrict uses of property that they, might, that they believe might harm the community. The issue of hydraulic fracturing, fracturing uh, which is also called fracking to extract natural gas, uh, illustrates these ideal ideological tensions over regulations and property rights. Fracking involves using high-pressured injections of water and chemicals into rock to extract natural gas. Democratic-led governments in New York and Maryland banned fracking despite potential the potential revenue from oil and natural gas. Texas and Oklahoma, both conservative states controlled by Republicans, have gone in the opposite direction, passing laws to make sure that local towns and cities cannot outlaw the practice in their communities. Opinions about fracking are divided along partisan lines. According to Hannah Wiseman, a Florida State University professor, professor um, who researches environmental regulation, quote, we have tended to see what would be expected, which is the more liberal states tend to be more concerned about the environmental and social effects of fracking, whereas the conservative states uh, tend to welcome the money, end quote. Uh, It is important to remember that party ideology and party identification are not the same thing. Parties try to appeal to potential members by focusing on issues, policies, and solutions that might appeal to to individuals with particular ideologies. 
As discussed in Chapter 10, however, an individual's political belief, including partisan identification, are formed through many influences, including family, education, and life experiences. Most people vote for candidates from the party whose identity is most similar to their own. Parties try to attract supporters by offering sharp ideological contrast to each other. The Republican and Democratic National Committees put out dozens of interests or of uh, interviews, position papers, press releases, videos, tweets, and other social media presentations that seek uh, uh, to further single uh, to further a single larger point. Their position on the issues is right and fostering cooperation. Oh, and the other side is wrong. Both parties display partisanship. They are less interested in fostering cooperation than they are in criticizing the ideological beliefs of their opposite of their opponents. Uh, after the terror shootings in San Ber- uh, Bernardino, California, in December of 2015, uh, Reince Priebus, uh, who was the chair of the Republican National Committee, issued a statement saying that it proved Democrats, quote, cannot be trusted to keep America safe from radical Islamic terrorists, end quote. Meanwhile, Debbie Weiserman Schultz, who was the chair of the Democratic National Committee at the time, uh, said her re-election to the House of Representatives was preferable to voters choosing, quote, uh, a bunch of radical Republicans who act like children, end quote. And that concludes section 12.1. Okay. Section 12.2. Ideology and economic policymaking. All societies wrestle with the question of the proper role of government in regulating economic activity. To what degree should individuals and businesses be left alone to pursue their own economic interests? To what degree should the government regulate working conditions, consumer safety, and the environment? Government intervention in the economy. In 1776, Adam Smith wrote an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, which is still used today to argue in support of a free market economy. Smith argued that national economic prosperity can best be obtained by allowing individuals to freely pursue their own economic interest and bargain with others in a competitive marketplace. In a laissez-faire economy, governments intervene as little as possible in the economic transactions between citizens and businesses. The term laissez-faire comes from a French expression, which means let us do it or to leave alone. In reality, however, it has never been as simple as keeping the government out of the economy. Even in the 19th century, for example, the federal government acted in the economy to support broad policy goals, such as the building of the transcontinental railroad. At the other end of the spectrum is a command and control economy, in which government dictates much of a nation's economic activity, including the amount of production and the price of goods. Before the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, it used command and control economic practices. China abandoned its command and control economy, switching to a mixed market system in the 1980s. The result has been unprecedented economic growth. The United States has has a mixed economy in which many economic decisions are left to individuals and businesses with the federal and state governments regulating economic activity. In chapter three, we discussed American federalism and the growth of national influence across a host of policy areas, including those involving the economy. Monitoring the health of the economy. The federal government collects and distributes data about the health of the economy and uses this information to guide economic policy making. Federal policymakers rely on a few key data indicators. Gross domestic product, or GDP, measures the total value of goods and services produced by American economic activity. A decline or stagnation of the nation's GDP indicates that the country's economy is not firing on all cylinders and could be slipping into an economic recession, which is typically defined by two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. That This is not good for American workers or for their elected representatives should voters blame them for the recession. 
Economists also focus on the unemployment rate, which is measured by the percentage of people actively looking for work who are unable to find jobs. The unemployment rate underestimates the problem because it does not take into account people who would like to find a job but have become so discouraged that they have given up looking for work. A third key indicator of the health of the American economy is the rate of inflation, or the rise in the prices of goods and services. A high rate of inflation, especially if not accompanied by an equal increase in wages, makes American workers poorer. One key measure of inflation is the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, which measures the cost of a basket of fixed goods and services over time. Every month, employees of the Bureau of Labor Statistics track the prices of about 80,000 items, including a variety of things like breakfast cereal, gasoline, pet food, college tuition, and funeral expenses. Many programs that involve mandatory spending, such as Social Security payments, are tied to calculations of the nation's CPI. If the CPI goes up, for example, the so Social Security recipients may receive a cost-of-living raise in their benefits. Oftentimes, there is a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. Republicans are usually willing to accept higher unemployment rates to achieve lower rates of inflation. Democrats are, are more willing to tolerate inflation to lower the unemployment rate. Business cycles and theories of economic policymaking. Policymakers have different ideas about how to define economic problems and how to solve them. Even when policymakers agree that an economic problem exists, they often differ in explaining why it happened and on how to fix it. Economists use the term business cycle to describe the, this cyclical nature of economic activity. An economy experiencing a generally upward trend of positive GDP growth may still experience periods of contraction and expansion, figure 12.4. Keynesianism, Keynes, supply-side economics, and monetarism are three theories that explain how government activities affect the performance of the economy as a whole. Keynesianism. One theory of business cycles comes from the work of John Maynard Keynes whose highly influential work, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, was published in 1936 during the depths of the Great Depression. For Keynes, the combined effect of individual decisions with regard to saving and spending drives business cycles. During periods of expansion, individuals become overconfident about future economic conditions and may make excessive, unwise investing decisions, thus exacerbating the economic boom. In periods of economic contraction, individuals become excessively gloomy and cut back on spending and investing thereby exacerbating the contraction, possibly to the point of a national economic depression. For Keynes, therefore, governmental economic policy should counterbalance a contraction by injecting more money into the economy. Democrats often support Keynesian policies, such as the creation of public works projects by the Roosevelt administration as part of the New Deal during the Great Depression. During the 2007 to 2009 recession, President Obama proposed a massive public works project with the goal of creating 2.5 million jobs. Supply-side theory. In stark contrast to Keynesian economic theory, which emphasizes the demand for goods and services, supply-side theory emphasizes the role of supply in fostering economic growth. Often called Reaganomics, in reference to one of the theory's most influential proponents, President Ronald Reagan, supply-side theory proposes lower taxes on individuals and businesses as the most effective tool to combat economic downturns. Critics of supply-side theory often use the term trickle-down economics to describe it arguing that these policies benefit the wealthy and that it is unlikely these benefits will make their way to individuals not directly impacted by lower tax rates. Proponents of supply-side economics argue that excessive taxation is a drag on the economy, hindering the growth of businesses. In recent years, Republicans have tended to support supply-side economics. In December 2017, the Trump administration successfully enacted legislation to cut individual and business taxes to boost economic growth. 
Managing the nation's economy is not an exact science. There are too many variables to predict all of the consequences of economic policy decisions. In spite of these uncertainties, federal authorities attempt to influence the, ec the economy through two important tools, monetary policy and fiscal policy. Through fiscal policy, the government uses taxation and spending to attempt to lower unemployment, support economic growth, and stabilize the economy. As discussed in chapters four and five, fiscal policy is shaped mostly by Congress and the president. Guiding the nation's economy through decisions on spending and taxation. Republicans and Democrats have different ideologies about fiscal policy. Republicans often support budgets that increase military spending and decrease taxes. For example, the Bush tax cuts passed in 2001 and 2003 reduced income tax rates for wealthy Americans and for those earning below average income. At the same time, military spending in at the same time, military spending increased to fund the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The budget showed a record federal deficit of $374 billion in 2003. President Obama's fiscal policy focused on tax increases for the wealthiest Americans and government spending programs to stimulate the economy. In his final budget proposal submitted in 2016, the president proposed boosting uh, total spending by 4.9%, mostly as a result of increases in mandatory programs such as Social Security. The deficit at the end of 2016 was $548 billion. President Trump's federal budget for 2018 shows a budget deficit in excess of $1 trillion, largely due to a combination of tax cuts and increases in military and defense spending. Although Democrats and Republicans differ about how to use taxing and spending to influence the economy, the budget is difficult to manage, and deficits will most likely occur well into the future. This is the end of 12.2. Okay, 12.3 is called Monetary Policy. <clears throat> According to monetary theory, the primary driver of business cycles in the supply of money is in an economy, including the amount of credit available to people and businesses who want to borrow money. What? That is a horrible sentence. Um, okay. According to this theory, a policy that makes more money available will lead to inflation, with too much money chasing too few goods. Uh, mon monetarists? Monetarists? Yeah, monetarists argue against government efforts to fine-tune the nation's economy through Keynesian policies that stimulate it, such as a large public works project or supply-side policies that encourage economic growth, such as decreasing taxes. Instead, uh, or monetarists uh, believe that, gov that the government should try to match the access, the access to money to the growth of the econ of economic production. What? Instead, monetarists believe the government should try to match the access to money to the growth in economic productivity. Monetary action can unleash powerful and destructive forces. Countries facing bankruptcy sometimes resort to printing money with no financial backing. Controlling a nation's printing press can be, very danger can be a very dangerous responsibility. One of the worst instances of misusing monetary policy occurred in Germany, Austria, and Hungary in the 1920s, after the, after the defeat of those nations in World War I. Those governments printed so much money that the people used sacks to carry enough currency to buy food. Although there were many complicated reasons for the rise of the Nazi party in Germany leading up to World War II, hyperinflation certainly contributed to the rise of fascism. Societies in monetary chaos are are vulnerable to anarchy, violence, and political extremism. The Federal Reserve System 
One way the federal government attempts to influence the economy is through the Federal Reserve System, often often referred to as the Fed. The system consists of seven uh, of a seven-member panel of governors, twelve regional federal uh, reserve banks, and six thousand member banks. The members of the board of governors are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. They serve fourteen-year non-renewable terms, except for the chair, who serves a four-year term. Uh, the governors cannot be removed except for cause, uh, except for cause giving them some independence uh, in the economic in making economic decisions. The Fed sets monetary policy, regulating the amount of money in the economy. The Fed has three main tools to influence the economy. The Fed buy, the Fed buys and sells Treasury securities, buying uh, buying a Treasury bill is investing in the U.S. government. The purchaser loans money to the government, and the government pays money back when the treasury bill is cashed, plus a set amount of interest. The Fed also uh, sets reserve rates that require banks to have a certain amount of deposits kept in reserve. The higher the reserve rate, less money banks are, are must the less money banks are have available to loan to their customers. The Fed also influences the interest rates banks pay to borrow money from the federal government. Lowering the federal interest rates, uh, the federal funds rate, stimulates the economy by encouraging businesses to borrow money because interest rates are lower. This influences other interest rates in the economy because banks and credit card companies usually adjust the rates that they charge their own customers in response to the actions of the Fed. The goal in employing these tools is to encourage healthy economic growth without causing damaging levels of inflation, in which prices rise in response to a growth in the supply of money. Too much money chasing too few goods. The Fed's policies may also be uh, used to prevent, a con- to prevent the country from falling into an economic depression. The Fed lowered interest rates in response to the economic crisis of 2008 in an attempt to avoid the kind of crushing downturn characterized by the Great Depression in the 1930s. The challenges and risks of conducting monetary policy. The Federal Reserve System has critics. Some question whether uh, whether or not it is truly independent of politics, especially when Congress or the President pressures it to take action. Others disagree with the Fed's stated goal of maintaining a modern, uh, moderate inflation of about 2%. While a 2% rise in the price of goods and services might not seem so drastic in one year, over time, persistent moderate inflation undercuts the spending power of Americans if their wages don't go up. International governments, financial firms, businesses, and individuals in America and abroad, uh, and abroad continue, to have, uh, continue to have confidence in the nation's currency. The American dollar remains strong against other nations' currencies. What is this book written by? Freaking <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> These sentences make no sense. <laughs> Section 12.3. Section 12.4, Ideology and Social Policy. Now we will shift our focus from economic to social policy. As with the economy, Democrats and Republicans have different ideas about social policy and how to balance the values of individualism, freedom, and equality of opportunity. The federal government and healthcare. In the 1960s, President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program created a social insurance program, amending the Social Security Act to establish Medicare, which provides health insurance to senior citizens age 65 or older. In 1972, President Nixon signed a law extending Medicare benefits to the disabled. Medicare covers hospitalization and physician services. In 2003, President George W. Bush signed a law adding a prescription drug benefit to Medicare. 
Collectively, Social Security and Medicare are massive programs, constituting by far the largest part of the federal social welfare spending and much of the federal budget. This is expected to increase in the next decade and then level off in 2030, figure 12.5. Political forces have led to an expansion of the government's role in healthcare. In 1965, during the administration of President Johnson, Congress also enacted the Medicaid program, which covers health services for low-income Americans. While Medicare, along with Social Security, is run by the federal government and supported by federal taxes, Medicaid is jointly funded and administered by the states and the federal government. For fiscal year 2016, total spending on Medicaid was roughly $553.5 billion. In the late 20th and early 21st centuries, both parties agreed that the nation's healthcare system needed reform. In 2012, the United States had the highest medical care costs in the world, spending $8,233 per person, more than two and a half times the average spent in other highly developed nations. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Most Americans obtain health insurance through their employers. However, in 2010, approximately 48 million Americans were uninsured and millions of others were struggling to pay the costs of care and treatment. On March 23, 2010, Obama signed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act into law. Not one Republican attended the signing. The Affordable Care Act, ACA, which is also called Obamacare, resulted in a major overhaul of the American health care system. Among its key provisions were the following. A requirement that employers with more than 50 full-time employees provide health care insurance for their employees or pay a penalty for not doing so. A requirement for individuals to obtain health care insurance with some exceptions for religious beliefs or financial hardship or pay a penalty for not doing so. An expansion of, Medicare benefits, or of Medicaid benefits for low-income Americans. The creation of health care exchanges in the states with federal sub subsidies to help individuals and small businesses obtain health care insurance. A requirement program for health insurers to cover young adults up to the age of 26 on their parents or guardians' plans. A prohibition against excluding individuals with pre-existing medical conditions in most plans. As the ACA was implemented, there were bumps in the road. Many individuals initially found it hard to navigate the website to enroll. More significantly, by 2015 and 2016, many insurers were raising their premiums on the exchange policies or dropping out of the program entirely. On the positive side, however, in 2015, reports showed that more than 16 million Americans had obtained health care coverage since the law's passage. The Republican Congress during Obama's second term was unsuccessful in attempting to overturn the ACA. Opponents of the ACA turned to the Supreme Court. In 2012, the National, Federal, the National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sibelius uh, the court upheld the constitutionality of the individual mandate provision in the law. In 2015, in King v. Burwell, the constitutionality of the tax credits and the ACA for federal exchanges, as well as those created by the states, were, was also upheld. The ACA is an interesting study in liberal and conservative ideologies on the complicated issue of health care. The ACA is not the same as nationalized health care owned and managed by the government, which is typical in most developed nations. The requirement that individuals purchase health insurance or pay a fine is called the individual mandate. The original idea of the individual mandate came from conservative economists who were opposed to President Clinton's health care plan. Supporters of the ACA argued that as more people purchase health insurance because law requires them to, the overall costs of health care should decline. Healthy young people who did not have health care insurance before the ACA would subsidize costs for people who need more health care. Liberals argue that health care should be made widely available to all members of the public, and they supported the ACA for this reason. Republicans oppose the individual mandate because they believe people should be responsible for making their own decisions about whether or not to purchase health insurance. Conservatives believe that health care should be subject to economic and market forces, and they oppose the ACA, especially the individual mandate. 
Furthermore, Republicans argued that Americans who buy insurance on the market are charged higher premiums to subsidize lower-cost health exchanges. Republicans opposed this policy because it redistributes wealth. President Donald Trump's successful tax overhaul legislation eliminated the mandate that individuals purchase health insurance or pay a fine. Republicans believe the individual mandate was an unnecessary government intrusion on individual freedoms or in, on individual freedom. The Republican Party wants to repeal most of the rest of the ACA because they believe it interferes with the free market. School choice competition and the markets. Like healthcare, Republicans and Democrats differ ideologically on how to reform public education. School choice reforms allow parents and guardians to choose their students' schools, which may encourage competition between the schools to attract students. School choice advocates support vouchers, which use taxpayer money to pay for tuition in private and religious schools. Voucher programs blur the line between public and private schools, raising a host of issues. Proponents argue that by offering alternatives to traditional public schools, vouchers create an environment in which all schools compete for students. The pressure put on the traditional public schools to retain their students and their funding by improving their standards would also benefit those unable to participate in the voucher programs. Opponents of vouchers fear the consequences of draining much-needed monies from traditional public schools and the creation of a lucky few schools that would gain at the expense of the many left behind. Opponents also argue that using tax dollars to support religious schools violates the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Not all proponents of school vouchers are conservative. One key advocate of vouchers was Fannie M. Lewis, a Democratic councilwoman from one of Cleveland's poorest wards. One journalist called Lewis the closest thing Cleveland has to a flesh-and-blood folk hero. A devout Christian, Lewis advocated tirelessly for the voucher program, giving voice to the desperation she and many other Cleveland parents, grandparents, and guardians felt about their students' futures. Most of Lewis's constituents, however, disagreed with the idea of providing taxpayer money to send kids to private schools. All 12 African-American members of the Ohio House of Representatives eventually voted against it. Many fear that the diversion of taxpayer money to private schools would put even more pressure on an already burdened system, leaving most public school students behind and denying them equality of opportunity. The controversial issue of school choice demonstrates the ideological tensions between the core values of equality of opportunity and support for individualism and the free market. That is the end of chapter 12. And the end of unit four. Oh, and the end of unit four. Nice. So, wait, no, that's the end of unit. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. No, no, it's not. Well, wait, yeah, it is. Yes, it is. Whoa, that's crazy. So that's, wait, did we, did we skip a chapter? No. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Wait. Yeah, because there's four in, in the fifth unit. So And we goes, did... It goes three, three, and then after that, it goes two, and then that last one was three, and then this one's four. Hmm. That's crazy. So we've got... We've just got... 13, Four 14, 15, and 16. Nice. Yep. Okay, 13.1, forms of political participation. Well, Americans often... Are you equate... kidding me? <laughs> what? Look at how long your... Yours... What? <laughs> it's not even a full page. What? It's half a page? <laughs> okay, hold on. How long is the next one? You have got oh to be. Oh God! The next. And then thirteen point is... three, of course, is really, really short. The next one is nine pages long. 
And then 13.4 is, is meh. But then you also have 13.5, which is like medium length. Okay. Either way, I don't know why they made this its own section for like half a page. Okay. 13.1, forms of political participation. While Americans often uh, equate political participation with voting, casting a ballot is only one of is only one of the many forms of political participation. By voting, citizens choose representatives to carry out their wishes. Along with political parties, interest groups, and the media, uh, elections... Oh. Oh, okay. Along with political parties, interest groups, and the media, elections are a linkage, linkage institution, connecting the individuals with government. Other forms of participation also influence the elected officials and citizens. According to political scientists Sidney Verba, K. Lehman uh, Schulzman, and Henry E. Brady, quote, studies of political participation traditionally have begun with, and often too ended with, the vote. Although voting is an important r- mode of citizen involvement in political life, it is but one of many political acts, end quote. Citizens may call email or use, or use social media uh, to uh, contact Wow, that was a horrible reading of that sentence. Citizens may call, email, or use social media to contact elected officials, making their preferences known or expressing their displeasure. People may also work on political campaigns, and some people may donate money to candidates. Uh, Through all of these activities, people try to make their voices heard. See figure 3.1. Individuals might join together to work cooperatively for a shared set of political goals. In joining a social movement, people come together and make social and political change with the goal of placing issues on the policy agenda. Members of social movements may participate in protests, attend political meetings, contact elected officials, or reach out to other citizens to educate them about the issues. While Americans vote at lower rates than citizens in other democracies, the rates of non-electoral participation are equal to or higher than their counterparts in other nations. See figure 13.2 for international comparison. That is the end of 13.1. Okay. Um, okay. Whew. 13.2, the right to vote and exercising that right. Voting is the most direct way for citizens to select policymakers. Demo- democracies allow almost all citizens to vote, and the franchise has been expanded over time. <laughs> the expansion of voting rights. Article 1, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution gives states the power to regulate their own voting laws. After the Constitution was ratified, most states set a property requirement for voting, and most voters were white male land- landholders. When George Washington was elected in 1789, only 6% of the population could vote. States gradually opened the vote to white men who did not own property, and in 1856, North Carolina became the last state to end the property requ- property requirement for voting. Five of the 17 amendments ratified since the Bill of Rights expand the franchise or suffrage or right to vote. The 15th Amendment, 1870, pro- prohibits states from discriminating against prospective voters on the basis of race. Although the amendment... Uh, Although the amendment technically gave African-American men the right to vote, as discussed in Chapter 9, Southern states adopted methods to block this right. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was an effort to secure the voting rights of African-Americans by protecting their rights to register and vote. Women were granted the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, although some states allowed women to vote earlier. The expansion of voting rights for women was also discussed in Chapter 9. 
The 26th Amendment, ratified in 1971, lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. All of these amendments expanded the number of people who could vote. Two other amendments expanded voters' rights. In the original Constitution, U.S. Senators were selected by state legislatures. The 17th Amendment of 1913 provides for the direct election of Senators. The 24th Amendment, ratified in 1964, prohibits the state and federal government from charging a poll tax, a method used to depress voter turnout among the poor. The 15th, 17th, 19th, 24th, and 26th Amendments expanded the opportunity for political participation. Obtaining the right to vote is an important first step in democratic participation. The second step is deciding to exercise that right. Factors that shape electoral participation. Voting is an essential component of a representative democracy. Voting holds elected representatives accountable for their promises and actions. Voting is the foundation of what James Madison called the democratic remedy to the dangers of faction and the tyranny of the minority that we examined in Chapter 2. Large percentages of Americans, however, do not vote. In the 2016 presidential election, only about 58% of eligible voters showed up at the polls, placing the United States near the bottom of democratic nations based on voter turnout. Turnout in midterm, in midterm elections is even lower. In 2014, roughly 36% of eligible voters cast ballots, continuing a trend of decline that has persisted over decades and marking the lowest level of voter turnout since 1942. What causes a person to vote or not to vote? Many factors shape a person's decision of whether or not to vote. Some, co some contributors to voter turnout are institutional, shaped by the laws and procedures surrounding the electoral process. Others depend upon whether it takes place during a presidential election year or the issues on the ballot. Voter turnout in the United States also varies with demographic characteristics, including economic status, education, age, race, or ethnicity, and gender. In many other countries, these demographic characteristics do not have the same effect. Socioeconomic status and educational attainment. Voting is costly. It takes time, commitment, and intellectual engagement. A key factor in American voter turnout is an individual's socioeconomic status, SES, which is a measure of an individual's wealth, income, occupation, and educational attainment. A clear and consistent pattern in electoral participation is that Americans with higher levels of SES participate more in elections. Individuals with higher incomes have more money to donate to political campaigns. Educated professionals are more likely to associate with interest groups, which bring political issues to their members' attention. Labor unions serve the same function in calling attention to political issues, and voter turnout among members of labor unions is higher than turnout among non-unionized workers. The most important contributor to an individual's SES and one of the most important determinants of voter turnout rates is educational attainment, figure 13.3. Uh, higher levels of educational attainment are associated with higher incomes, making the registration process and the issues involved in an election easier to navigate. Political efficacy. Education also plays a role in shaping how individuals think about themselves as political actors and potential voters. The intellectual resources and skills that higher levels of education produce also increase an individual's sense of political efficacy, the confidence that he or she can make, can make effective political change. Changes in participation as people age. Another trend is also clear. Young adult voting eligible Americans vote at lower rates than members of older generations, figure 13.4. Like income and education, age is connected to many other factors. Older Americans are more likely to have higher levels of income and wealth. Another factor may be the challenges registering to vote, especially for college stu students or people who have moved to a new state. While a, 17, while a 1979 Supreme Court ruling affirmed the right of college students to vote in their states of school attendance, state voting laws and local practices often made this made make student travel make students travel a rocky road. Racial and ethnic identities. Voter turnout is also highly correlated with racial and ethnic identity. Figure 13.5 on page 428, uh, which is often connected to SES. While turnout rates between whites and African Americans have narrowed in recent years. Uh, the turnout rates among Hispanic American citizens is lower than that of Americans with other racial and ethnic identities. 
As a group, Hispanic Americans are younger, and as we have discussed, younger Americans vote in far fewer numbers than their older counterparts. As eligible Hispanic voters grow older and grow in numbers, the political landscape may shift. Gender and voter turnout. Since the presidential election of 1980, women have voted at a slightly higher rate than men, usually by a difference of a few percentage points. Before 1980, voting eligible men voted at higher rates than women. The difference between men and women's modern voting patterns hold true across racial and ethnic identities, with the largest percentage difference between African-American men and women, which was more than 9% in the 2012 presidential election. The difference in voter turnout rates among African-American men and women may be partly a result of felon disenfranchisement, which disproportionately affects African-American men. Differences in voter turnout between men and women are also connected with age. A higher percentage of women live, a higher percentage of women ages 18 to 44 voted than men in the same age cohort, while men 75 and up voted at higher rates than women within the same age group. Candidate characteristics and voter turnout. The demographic characteristics of the candidates may impact voter turnout. As shown in figure 13.6, turnout among African-American voters steadily increased from 1996 to 2012 when it reached a high point. The high level of voter turnout among African-Americans in the 2008 and 2012 elections is sometimes called the Obama effect. This trend is increasing voter turnout among African-Americans stalled in 2016 when black voter turnout decreased. The race of the candidate may have had some impact on voter turnout races among African-Americans, although this is difficult to measure with certainty. Voters might also consider the gender of a candidate deciding whether and for whom to vote. And in the 2016 presidential race, women voted overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton. White, non-college-educated women, however, overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump with 62% of the vote. The voter turnout rate among women was 63.7% in 2012 and 63.3% in 2016, which is not a, a significant change. Turnout among white women was 66.8% in 2016, up slightly from 65.6% in 2012. From these figures, it appears that having a female on the ballot does not make, a, make women more likely to vote. A Pew Research Center survey conducted in 2016, Table 13.1, measured the impact of other candidate traits. Voters view military service as a positive trait in presidential candidates. Most respondents said it wouldn't matter to them if a candidate attended a prestigious university, is Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Mormon, or evangelical, or evangelical, evangelical Christian, and used marijuana in the past, had an extramarital affair, or is gay or lesbian. Besides demographic characteristics, voters may consider a candidate's appearance in deciding whether and for whom to vote. Candidates want to convey a positive image, and they often hire consultants to give them advice about what to wear, how to style their hair, uh, which tone of voice to use, and how to use body language to project self-confidence. A British research study concluded that attractive candidates have an advantage in winning elections. However, another study looked at U.S. Senate elections between 1990 and 2006 and did not find an instance where good looks helped a candidate win. According to Ryan Enos, a political scientist at Harvard, politics and voting are greatly affected by factors such as partisanship, the economy, campaigning, and even policy, all of which leave little room for voters to cast votes based on politicians' looks. Voting decisions are complicated. It can be difficult to measure the degree to which demographic and other characteristics of candidates influence decisions about, what, about whether to vote. Partisan attachment. Individuals with a strong attachment to a political party are more likely to vote than those without one. Political mobilization, such as efforts to get out the vote, GOTV, can be decisive in an election. These efforts may be direct, though through recruiting, sponsoring meetings, or requesting contributions, or indirect, such as building social networks where potential voters can engage with their friends and associates. Legal and institutional factors that influence voter, voter turnout. Most Americans are eligible to vote, but institutional factors impact voter turnout. State laws vary in whether a felony conviction bars someone from voting. Compared to other countries, the U.S. has one of the most restrictive laws in the world. Bad sentence. 
Voting involves two actions, registering to vote and casting a ballot. States have different registration requirements, setting rules for who can vote, how ballots may be cast, and where a person may go to vote. As of April 2018, 12 states automatically register all citizens as voters. In most states, however, would-be voters must register uh, before the election, often as much as 30 days out of the residence. Uh, Otherwise, they will not be allowed to vote. To register to vote, Americans are required to show identification or proof of residency in their state or both. Uh, Others require another form documenting residency. As of March 2018, 16 states allow same-day registration, which means that voters can register on election day. See figure 13.7. Even in states that allow same-day registration, however, residency requirements may result in the disenfranchisement of certain Americans, such as the homeless, who may lack documentation like utility bills that can prove state residency. As of March 2018, 18 states require photo identification to be shown when casting a vote. See figure 13.8 for states required voting day identification. College students may be disenfranchised by voter identification laws. Across the nation, state lawmakers are debating whether or not students should be able to use a college ID as proof of residency, especially if the college or university is a private institution. Refer again to figure 13.8. When such policies were being debated in Texas, Natalie Butler, a graduate and former student government president of the University of Texas at Austin, spoke out against a state law that prohibited the use of school IDs as proof of residence. She noted the law's impact on participation in local elections, stating, if we're going to make it even harder for students to impact cities' politics, that's a huge problem. Some advocates of electoral reform hope to make the registration process easier and less costly in terms of time and energy. In contrast to most modern representative democracies in the United States, the burden of registering to vote falls entirely on the potential voter and there is no federal governmental action to register citizens automatically. The National Voter Registration Act of 1993, commonly called the Motor, the Motor Voter Law, allows Americans to register to vote when applying for or renewing their driver's licenses. The law also makes it easier for Americans with disabilities to register. As of March 2018, 38 states and the District of Columbia had online voter registration, see figure 13.9. While online registration requires efforts to make the process secure and free from fraud, it offers the promise of increasing turnout. National presidential and congressional elections are held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November. This scheduling may discourage voting because it is challenging for some Americans to get to their polling place on what is normally a work day. Although states are increasingly allowing voters to vote early or cast absentee ballots, some reformers have proposed that national elections be held on weekends or that election day be declared a national holiday. Election-specific factors. Also contributing to the level of voter turnout in a given election are factors surrounding the election itself. If it is a presidential election year, then voters will turn out in higher numbers than if it is not. Figure 13.10. That is the end of section 13.2. Good job. Um, Okay. Section 13.3. Democratic representation and theories of voting behavior. The framers of the Constitution did not want the system they created to become too democratic. They figured the potential of mischief of faction and the dangers of tyranny of the majority. Therefore, they built in roadblocks to protect the passions of the majority. Senators, for example, were originally chosen by state legislatures rather than directly by voters. And the president is selected indirectly through through an electoral college. The election of senators was discussed in Chapter 4. And the election and the electoral college was covered in chapter five. Regarding another safeguard, another safeguard against faction is the system of American federalism, which divides sovereignty between the nation and the states. One consequence of American federalism is provided in, in Article One for section in Section Four of the Constitution is that 
quote, times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by law or by the legislature thereof, end quote. As discussed above, this means that the states set the rules for elections. Following the Civil War, the Civil War, Southern states enacted laws, including grandfather clauses and literacy tests, in an effort to disenfranchise African Americans, as discussed in Chapter 8. Before ratification of the 19th Amendment, women could vote in some states, but not others. And today, the language of Article 1, Section 4 ensures that the states can devise their own voting technologies, whether electronic or paper-based, as well as having different policies about whether convicted felons are allowed to vote. Compared to other democracies around the world, Americans get to exercise their right to vote often. Americans vote for more than half a million positions in local, state, and federal government. However, many American citizens do not vote, or they are shut out of the process. Barriers to voting include the registration process, voter identification laws, and difficulty making it to the polling place during a workday, and felony disenfranchisement. Uh, African Americans, African, as it just says American, (laughs) American elections occur on on fixed and predictable schedules. Unlike parliamentary systems in which the prime minister decides when to call an election, uh, in the United States, voters elect the president every four years, regardless of what is happening in the nation or the world. How citizens make voting decisions and the functions of elections. Elections serve as a signal, a way of transmitting information to elected officials about voters' preferences and and priorities. In a representative democracy, elections are the key way Americans can keep their elective officials in line. Citizens may vote an incumbent out of office and vote in a challenger if the incumbent's performance has not been in line with the voters' policy preferences. Voting based on what a citizen believes is is in his or her best interest is called rational choice voting. I didn't sneeze. Maybe not. Yep. No. I can't tell. Okay. Anthony Downs, who is concluded, uh, who concluded that voters behave quote sensibly and efficiently, uh, presented the rational choice model. Under this model, voters, prop- uh, voters, what? Voters are purposive, purposive. Is that a word? You know that's a word. I guess so. I mean, I don't know what it means if it is, and it's really weird. Well, it says which means afterwards. Mm. Which means they want to achieve their goals acting as rationally as they can, given their knowledge in the situation. Voters want to see the politics they favor enacted, the policies they favor enacted. Uh, Members of Congress who want to get reelected under under rational choice theory. uh, What? Oh. Members of Congress want to get reelected. Under rational choice theory, candidates in the democratic systems seek to ma- maximize their chances of winning elections, and parties adopt pol- policies that are popular with most voters. Reflecting back on an incumbent's past performance uh, before making a choice in an election is called retrospective voting. Several interest groups, including the National Rifle Association and Human Rights Campaign, issue congressional scorecards. Uh, to help their members keep up with voting records of members of Congress. Well, retrospective voters 
take their cues from past behavior, pers- uh, prospective voters look to the future. Prospective voting means that it means casting a ballot for a candidate who promises to enact policies favored by the voter. President Trump appealed to prospective voters with his promise to make America great again. Uh, in the in the speech when he announced his presidential bid, he uh, promised, quote, I would build a great wall and nobody will fall. I'm, I'm going to do a Donald Trump impression here. I would build a great wall and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me, and I'll build them very inexpensively, end quote. Um, some voters simply cast ballots for members of one political party of all, for all the offices on the ballot. This is called party line voting, and we will examine in chapter 14 about political parties. Uh, party labels party labels serve as a cue to voters. Uh, when people identify with a party, they generally agree with the most of the uh, positions supported by that party. A voter might not know how much uh, uh, how much about hmm. A voter might not know much about all of the candidates running for office at the local, state, or national level, but a party label is a cue for them to vote for candidates they would most likely uh, would support anyway, if they studied each candidate's positions individually. Uh, for these voters, party line voting simplifies the election process. A recent work in political science based on extensive survey research described voters as mostly identifying, quote, with ethnic, racial occupations, or sorry, quote, with ethnic, racial, occupational, religious, or other sorts of groups, and often, whether through a group of ties or hereditary loyalties with a political party, end quote. Elections help define or change the national agenda. Elections can increase the government's legitimacy in enacting policies and laws, especially when elected officials win by margins large enough to give them a mandate to carry out their policies. Citizens use their power at the ballot box to put people in office uh, that will support the policies they favor and protect their constitutional rights and liberties. Elections can also be used as a weapon to get rid of office holders uh, who have disappointed or angered voters. Elections remind Americans that they live in a, rep- a representative democracy. That ends 13.3. 13.4, the politics of presidential elections. The basics of presidential elections are laid out in Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution. Presidents must be at least 35 years old, be born in the United States, and have resided in the country for 14 years. Presidential elections occur every four years. Presidents are selected through the Electoral College. Under the 12th Amendment, 1804, the Electoral College votes for the president and the vice president separately. This means the president and vice president run for office together on their party's ticket. When a candidate wins the presidency, his or her running mate becomes the vice president. The stages of presidential campaigns. Presidential elections have two official campaign phases. The nomination campaign, in which the candidates try to secure the nomination of their political party. And the general election campaign, in which successful nominees compete for the presidency. The general trend in modern campaigns has been one of increasing openness, taking some of the power away from the party elites and placing it in the hands of party activists and average Americans. However, party leaders still have more power to shape the nomination than the average American voter. Before the official campaign, presidential hopefuls lay the foundations for their bids years before the official process begins. They begin raising money and contacting party officials trying to win the favor of the party elite. An exploratory committee may attract media coverage, and it allows a potential candidate to test the waters by traveling around the country, conducting public opinion polls, and making outreach phone calls to attract potential voters. If a candidate decides to run, his or her campaign becomes official. (laughs) 
the nomination process. Declared candidates from the same party compete for that party's nomination. Federal and state laws set many of the rules governing the nomination process, but the parties control most of the details of how a candidate gets nominated. Key differences exist across states and between the parties themselves. Most states hold presidential primary elections in which a state's voters choose delegates who support a particular candidate. In some states, these elections may be open primaries where all eligible voters may vote regardless of partisan affiliation. Some states require voters to affiliate with a party on the day of the primary to participate in an open primary. Other states may hold closed primaries, which are open only to voters who are affiliated with a political party weeks or months before the date of the primary. Some states hold caucuses in which the party members gather to discuss candidates and issues and to select delegates to represent them in later stages of the nomination process. The national conventions held by the parties late in the summer conclude the nomination phase of the presidential campaign. The role of, the, of political parties in nominations and campaigns will be discussed in more detail in Chapter 14. The general election. After the national party conventions, the nominees are seasoned campaigners, having polished their talking points and interactions with the media. The problem is that now, instead of speaking mainly to their base of course supporters, nominees also have to appeal to independent and undecided voters who are more moderate ideologically than voters in primaries and caucuses. Candidates must maintain the energy of core party voters while also appealing to the undecided middle. The worry is not that voters who represent the wings of a nominee's party will vote for a candidate from the other party. The worry is that if core partisan voters think their nominee has moved too far to the center and abandoned core party goals, they will not make phone calls, knock on doors, and mobilize undecided voters during the campaign. If a candidate has survived the nomination campaign by appealing primarily to the extremes of the party, then he or she may be seen as too far left or too far right to appeal to independent and undecided voters. The Electoral College. Voters do not cast ballots directly for the president. Instead, they are voting for a slate of electors pledged to vote for a nominee. The Electoral College is described in Article 2, Section 1, which also places limits on who may serve as an elector. The, the, this Electoral College chooses the president. The number of Electoral College votes to win the presidency is 270. Each state is allocated a number of electoral votes based on its representation in Congress, one for each of its two senators and one for each member of the House of Representatives, guaranteeing each state at least three electoral votes. Adding the three electoral votes allocated to the District of Columbia brings the total to 538. Uh, all states except Maine and Nebraska award electoral votes using a winner-take-all system. In Maine and Nebraska, whoever wins the state wins the two electoral votes allocated for the Senate, and the rest are awarded for winning a plurality of votes within each of the state's congressional districts. Electors are chosen from party leaders and loyal activists. Although they have pledged to vote for their party's candidate, there is a risk that they may change their minds in between the general election and the electors vote, which takes place in December after the presidential election. Electors who do not vote for the candidate supported by the majority of the voters in their states are called faithless electors. Faithless electors are rare and have never changed the outcome of a presidential election. If no nominee wins a majority of electoral votes, then the presidential election goes to Congress, with the House of Representatives choosing among the top three electoral vote winners. Each state gets one vote, and the candidate with a majority of votes wins. The Senate chooses the vice president. This process was used twice in the nation's history, but not since the election of 1824. A presidential candidate can win the presidency without winning more than half of the popular vote. This has happened several times in U.S. history. 
1992, Bill Clinton won the presidential election with 43% of the popular vote. Ross Perot, a third-party candidate, won nearly 19% of the popular vote, making it difficult for either of the majority party candidates to win with a majority. Sometimes the candidate who wins the popular vote loses the electoral college vote and the presidency. This happened five times in U.S. history, twice recently. Uh, in 2000, when George W. Bush defeated Al Gore, and again in 2016, when Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton. See figure 13.11. The Electoral College shapes candidate strategies. Given that all but two states award their electoral votes in a block, candidates tend to focus their campaigns on states with a large number of electoral votes and those whose electoral votes seem to be in play, largely ignoring other states. For example, Republicans can count on a majority of Texans to support their party, and Democrats can count on Californians. So there is little incentive for candidates to allocate scarce resources on those states, even though they have large populations. Instead, candidates focus on battleground states, where the polls show a close contest, and swing states where levels of support for the parties are similar, and elections swing back and forth between the Democrats and Republicans. Critics of the Electoral College claim it is undemocratic because it does not reflect the will of the majority, causing the government to lose legitimacy. The Electoral College may lower voter turnout. For example, a Republican living in California may be discouraged from voting in the presidential election because most Californians vote for the Democratic nominee. When voters don't show up for presidential elections, they miss an opportunity to influence the outcome of state and local elections and ballot initiatives. Proponents of the Electoral College argue that it was established to provide a check on the passions of the majority. It protects the influence of the states under our system of federalism. Furthermore, if the president were selected through the popular vote, candidates would focus on large population centers, ignoring rural voters. That is the end of section 13.4. Okay. The last section in chapter 13 is section 13.5. It's called Money and Campaigns. In the 2016 presidential election, roughly $1.5 billion in the in total, was raised in support of each of the campaigns of Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton and Republican candidate Donald Trump. Clinton's campaign committee raised a staggering $563 million, while Trump's campaign raised $333 million, not including money raised from outside sources. The 2016 presidential election proves that raising money, most money Raising the most money doesn't guarantee victory, but candidates need staggering amounts of money to run their campaigns. What money buys? Money is a strategic weapon. For all of the reasons we discussed here, or we will discuss here, the cost of elections has only gone up. Money buys media time on television and radio, in print, and in social media outlets. Some campaign advertisements focus on the candidate's qualities and creating a positive image. Others focus on policy differences between the candidate and his or her opposition. Finally, negative campaign advertisements attack an, imp- an opponent in an effort to raise funds about or raise doubts about him, uh, him or her. Negative campaigning has been uh, has been part of presidential politics since the election of 1800. Polls show that most voters dislike negative ads, and most people think that campaigns would be improved by reducing them. Political scientists disagree that the impact about the impact of negative advertising on political on the political process. John Gear, a uh, has argued that negative campaign ads may actually increase the quality of information available to voters as they make uh, choices in elections. Campaigns use money to hire professional consultants, political consultants, or yeah, hire professional consultants. Political consultants use political science to target 
the candidate's message to voters. Campaign consultants also uh, figure out what figure out the districts and even the neighborhoods where voter turnout will be crucial. Campaigns need money to hire staff, help manage their message, coordinate media strategy, uh, arrange public appearances, and conduct uh, public opinion polls. Efforts to mobilize uh, voters uh, called get out the vote efforts uh, also cost money. Finally, having a sizable war chest, especially in camp in a early campaign, might discourage potential challengers from entering the race in the first place. Campaign finance reform. Many people are concerned about the powerful role money plays in politics, and laws have been passed to limit its influence. In 1971, following the Watergate scandal, Congress passed the Federal Election Campaign Act, which created the Federal Election Commission, or FEC, uh, an independent agency group that oversees campaign finance laws. That act, or the act also sets rules requiring disclosure of the source of campaign funds, uh, placed limits on campaign contributions, and instituted a system for public financing of presidential actions. As discussed in, earlier in this chapter, in, two, in 1976, in Buckley v. Vallejo, the Supreme Court upheld the uh, the constitutionality of restrictions on campaign contributions by individuals, although not on money spent uh, independently or money spent by candidates on their own campaigns. When it comes to money in elections, however, controlling the influence of money has often been like handling a balloon. Squeeze it in one place and expand somewhere else. In 2002, uh, Congress passed the Bipartisan Act, or BRCA, or BCRA, which place stricter, limit, stricter limits on by individuals and PACs. Under BCRA, uh, independence groups, independent groups were not allowed to run ads 30 days before a primary or 60 days before a, the general election. As discussed in the beginning of this chapter, these limits were challenged as a violation of the First Amendment right to free speech in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, Commission in 2010. In a 5-4 decision, the court struck down the portions of the BCRA, ruling that corporations and labor unions are persons under the law protected by the First Amendment. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy delivered the majority opinion. The court addressed the difficult standards, uh, the difficult standard laws must meet. What? Oh. The court addressed the difficult standards laws must meet if they restrict speech. Quote, Laws burdening uh, such speech are subject to strict scrutiny, which requires the government to prove the restriction furthers a compelling interest and is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest, end quote. According to the majority opinion, BCRA's prohibitions against independent ads 30 days prior to a primary and 60 days before a general election constitute a restriction of speech based on its content. This is precisely the kind of speech the First Amendment was meant to protect. The majority opinion states, quote, Premised on mistrust of government power, the First Amendment stands against attempts to disfavor certain subjects or viewpoints or to distinguish among these speakers, which may be uh, among different speakers, which may be a means to control content. The government may also commit a constitutional wrong when it when by law it identifies certain preferred speakers, there is no basis for the pr- uh, proposition that in the political speech context, 
the government may impose restrictions on certain disfavored speakers. Both his both history and logic led to this conclusion. End quote. The court reasoned that quote all speakers, including individuals and the media, use money amassed from the economic marketplace to fund their speech, and the First Amendment protects the resulting speech. Differential treatment of media corporations and other corporations cannot be squared with the First Amendment. End quote. Uh, there were two concurring opinions in Citizens United in the Citizens United case, along with two opinions that concurred in part and dissented in part. These multiple opinions demonstrate have a variety of viewpoints among the Supreme Court justices. A dissenting opinion authored by Justice uh, Stevens, uh, joined by Justice Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Uh, took issue with the majority's characterization of corporations as persons under the law. In the, conce- in the context of election to public office, the distinction between corporate and human speakers is significant. Although they make enormous contributions to our society, corporations are not actually members of it. They cannot vote or run for office because they may be managed, uh, because they may be managed and controlled by non-residents. Their interests may conflict in fundamental respects with the interests of eligible voters the financial resources, legal structure, and electoral process. Uh, our, oh, did I skip a line? Legal structure and instrument orientation of corporations raise uh, legitimate concerns about the, their role in the electoral process. Our lawmakers have a compelling constitutional basis, if not also a, de- a democratic duty, to take measures designed to guard against the potentially the potentially dangerous and delicate deleterious uh, effects of corporation spending in local and national races, end quote. The, dis- the dissent predicted that the outcome of the majority's opinion would harm democracy in stating, quote, the court ruling threatens to undermine integrity, the integrity of election institutions across the nation. Furthermore, the dissent uh, rejected the majority's contention, oh, sorry, end quote. Furthermore, the dissent rejected the majority's opinion that BCRA imposed unconstitutional restrictions on speech, arguing that free speech must not, or that the First Amendment is not absolute. Uh, Quote, the First Amendment provides that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, apart perhaps from measures designed to protect the press that might, that text might seem that text might seem to permit no distinctions of any kind, yet in a variety of contexts, we have held that speech can be regulated differently on account of the speaker's identity. When identity is understood uh, in categorical or institutional terms, the government routinely places special restrictions on the speech rights of students, prisoners, members of armed forces, foreigners, and its own employees. When, stru- when such restrictions are justified, by a legitimate governmental interest, they do not necessarily raise constitutional problems, end quote. The dissent would have upheld BCRA's time limitations as a reasonable regulation on speech. One of the results of the court's decision in Citizens United is that super PACs are allowed to spend unlimited amounts on political campaigns. Unlike other PACs, super PACs must not be coordinated with the candidate's campaign. Spending by super PACs uh, raises a tricky issue. If there is no contact between a super PAC and members of the campaign, if the super PAC runs advertisements that are successful in getting its point across, candidates will take notice. 
information will still change hands, even if this transfer is uncoordinated and legal. Um, David Bossie, who brought Citizens United to the Supreme Court, summed up his feeling about the decision in I'm responsible, and quote, I'm responsible for Citizens United. I'm not sorry, end quote, calling it a sweeping victory against the government censorship of free speech. Yet, the 2010 decision that opened the floodgates to unlimited corporate campaign contributions was opposed by 8 out of 10 Americans across the political spectrum. Uh, The case is central to understanding the ways that money is deployed in today's campaigns. Representative democracy depends on the actions of citizens, uh, and people can make their voices heard through voting, volunteering for a campaign, uh, donating money, joining interest groups, contacting elected officials, and protesting. Uh, Political campaigns seek to convince voters that a candidate will enact policies they favor. Although citizens have have, uh, the right to run for office, it takes a lot of money to run a campaign. A high cost of campaigning raises questions about whether money plays too big a role in politics. This concern, along with worries about how uh, how lower voter turnout rates, raises the question about how to ensure the representative nature of our democracy. This ends 13.5 and chapter 13. Okay, cool, cool. Chapter 14, Political Parties. 14.1, Functions of of Political Parties. Parties are linkage institutions which connect citizens with government. A healthy party serves as a check on the opposition, promoting ideas and candidates that differ from the other party's positions so voters can choose how they want to be represented. The roles that parties play. Political scientist V.O. Key Jr. identified three main roles that political parties play in American representative democracy. One, as organizations, political parties recruit, nominate, and support candidates for political office. Two, in the electorate, parties provide labels that voters can use as shortcuts in identifying candidates closer to their own political ideologies. Three, in government, a party enacts the policy positions of its members and acts as an opposition to the majority party when it is in the, when it is in the minority. Parties as organizations. A political party unites people with shared social, economic, and ideological goals. It finds and supports candidates to run for federal, state, and local offices. Parties educate and mobilize voters. They raise money and develop a media strategy to try to get their candidates elected. If those candidates win, parties try to keep them in office. The parties also come up with policy platforms that they want their candidates to follow. Today, however, national party organizations are struggling. That's partly because of the ability of outside groups to raise and spend large amounts of money on behalf of political causes. As we studied in the last chapter, the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission 2010 allows for unlimited spending independent of a campaign or candidate. The campaign finance system restricts the ability of parties to raise and spend money and to coordinate campaigns so that candidates of the same party can pool their expenses. The party and the electorate. Party identification is the degree to which voters are connected to a political party. We have already explored the individual contributors to Americans' political beliefs, Chapter 10, and the factors that contribute to voters' choices and whether or not they vote at all, Chapter 12. Parties influence voter choices. Parties support policies consistent with a broad set of political beliefs. An R or a D next to a candidate's name serves as a cue to voters about what that candidate stands for. Voters use party labels as a shortcut in the voting booth. Some states have ballots that enable voters to cast their votes for all of the candidates from one political party. Party line voters who pick candidates based on their party affiliation use the process of straight ticket voting to mark their ballots. Since the 1980s, more people have identified themselves as Democrats than as Republicans. 
But one frustration for both parties is that larger numbers of people consistently have not identified with either party 14 point, figure 14.1. In fact, a Gallup poll taken in 2015 showed that just 29% of those surveyed called themselves Democrats, the lowest figure in the past 27 years and probably the lowest since the early 1950s. Meanwhile, 26% considered themselves Republican just one percentage point above the historically low figure of 25% recorded two years earlier. In contrast, the percentage of independent voters has grown sharply. A big part of slipping party identification is Americans' deep frustration with the inability of the federal government to enact policies. A Gallup poll published in December 2017 asked Americans what they felt was the nation's top problem. 22% of those polled reported that dissatisfaction with the government was the most important problem, several percentage points ahead of the economy. In recent elections, voters have been less likely to support candidates of different parties in a single election, a practice known as split-ticket voting. From 1964 until 1988, as many as one-third of House elections featured a candidate of one party winning, even though a presidential candidate of the other party got the most votes in that candidate's district. Once people identify a group to which they belong, they are much more likely to vote for their party and less likely to split a ticket, according to political scientist Matthew Lewandowski. They are more likely to become devoted cheerleaders. In 2012, only 26 out of the House's 435 members won elections in districts where someone who was not from their party got the most presidential votes. The resulting split ticket percentage of 5.7 was the lowest it had been since 1920. In 2016, every state that went for Trump elected a Republican senator. On the other side of the aisle, every state that went in Clinton's favor elected a Democrat to the Senate. The party in government. At the national level, during national party conventions, party members write, argue over, and agree on a party platform, which defines the party's general stance on issues. These platforms are voted on at the conventions. Because of the difficulty in getting large groups of people, even those with similar beliefs, to agree on something, the platforms can be the source of great controversy. In 2012, Democrats initially took out a sentence in their party's platform about helping individuals reach their God-given potential. But that would have removed any reference to God in the platform, and Democrats feared that it would lead Republicans to depict them as out of touch with religious Americans. The sentence was reinstated. When its candidates win, a party's members take office and begin the process of governing. While it is usually much easier for a political party to get its policies passed when it controls both houses of Congress and the presidency, party platforms are not binding and elected officials from the same party do not always agree on the issues. Party leadership. The president generally chooses the chair of his or her national party. The national party chair raises money and serves as a prominent spokesperson in the media. Yet the national party organization's power over the state and local parties is advisory. It can't tell them what to do. In fact, the state parties can put pressure on national parties. In 2014, as public opinion in the United States shifted toward greater acceptance of same-sex marriage, Nevada's Republican Party dropped language from its party platform opposing same-sex marriage. The National Committee later rejected proposed resolutions that were critical of same-sex marriage, reflecting its responsiveness to state party organizations. Recruiting and supporting candidates. Parties use recruitment to seek candidates who best reflect the party's philosophy and who will draw voters to them. The parties look for people who can contrast sharply with their opponents. Parties try to discourage prospective candidates who don't have a good chance of winning. Parties provide expertise and support for their candidates, as discussed in Chapter 13, Campaigning is expensive. Parties hire political consultants to help them raise money and to refine their message to specific targeted groups of voters. Parties hire campaign staff, arrange for public appearances, coordinate media strategy, and conduct public opinion polls to help their candidates win. Parties maintain voter databases to collect information about potential voters and how to target them. In the 2016 campaign, the Democratic Party developed a complex algorithm named ADA, after a female 19th century mathematician, 
which ran 400,000 simulations a day to determine which battleground states were the most important. The algorithm played a role in almost every decision made by the Clinton campaign, including where to run ads. President Trump's campaign hired Cambridge Analytica, a data management firm, to target voters. The firm is accused of harvesting personal information from 50 million Facebook users in an effect to sway their votes. This is the end of section 14.1. Okay, section 14.2, the development of American political parties. For about, 100, for about the last 150 years, most politicians have belonged to either the Democratic or Republican Party. Parties seek to build a party coalition consisting of groups of voters who will continue to support the party's policies and, most important, vote for the party's candidates. However, coalitions that support a, po- a political party shift over time with some groups leaving to join other political parties. For example, the New Deal coalition was made up of, mo- of Northern liberals, African Americans, and white Southerners. That coalition was bound to fracture over the issue of, st- of civil rights which it did in 1964. The concept of shifting coalitions explains how Nixon was able to return the South or to turn the South Republican what how Nixon was able to turn the South Republican and how it what's that turn the South Republican like turn is in like a ver like not turn him into something but just like turn him like oh, switch okay. his political okay uh, the concept of shifting coalitions explains how Nixon was able to turn the South the South Republican, and how it explains that, and how in 2016 Trump succeeded in winning over blue collar whites in the Rust Belt. It also explains why each major party seeks to appeal to the weakest link in the opposing party's coalition. Control of government has shifted back and forth between parties in periods of realignment, which is a major shift in allegiance to political parties that is often uh, driven by changes in the issues that unite or divide voters. Periods of realignment may be, unsh- uh, uh, may be ushered in by critical elections, a major election that shifts the balance of power between the two parties. Periods when one party wins most national elections are called party eras. Political scientists debate the boundaries of major eras in political and party control uh, and how decisive a particular election was in signaling a change in those boundaries. From 1969 until 2016, the government has often been divided, with one party controlling one house, uh, one house or one or both houses of Congress with the president from the opposing party. Some political scientists refer to this as the era of divided government. Modern American politics, American party politics, in two thousand in the two thousand what is it that in the mid nineteen sixties the Republican Party's uh, base began shifting away from the Northeast and uh, toward the rapidly growing South and West, enabling Nixon to win the presidency in nineteen sixty uh, in nineteen sixty eight and even more decisively in the nineteen seventy two election. Uh, much of this change had been di- had been driven by a realignment in which large numbers of Southern white voters shifted from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Nixon, uh, Nixon strategist Kevin Phillips had urged the president to pursue uh, a Southern strategy and place, uh, play on some whites' negative reaction to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Nixon also capitalized on the backlash against hippies and protesters against the Vietnam War 
calling on, quote, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, uh, end quote, to support Republican policies. Um, The Republican Party's fortunes declined temporarily as a result of the Watergate scandal, which led to Nixon's resignation in 1974. In 1976, Democratic presidential candidate uh, Jimmy Carter swept the entire South and failed to uh, win a single state west of Texas. Uh, by emphasizing his debt or his deeply religious beliefs and his born again status, reclaiming to, uh, reclaiming to the Democratic Party the Southern whites who had supported Nixon, but Ronald Reagan in, uh, reinvigorated the party in his uh, with his landslide election in 1980 against Jimmy Carter. Reagan's message of how to lower taxes, smaller government, of I'm not reading this well. <clears throat> Ronald Reagan reinvigorated the party with his landslide election in 1980 against Jimmy Carter. Reagan's message of lower taxes, smaller government, and a strong defense remains highly influential in the GOP today. Reagan Democrats were white working, uh, working class voters who had supported the Democratic Party in the, pa- in the past, but switched their allegiance to the Republican Party and voted for Reagan. In 1992, Bill Clinton became the first Democrat since, Jim, or since Carter to occupy the White House, partly by uh, prodding his party towards the ideological center and partly by arguing that then-President George H.W. Bush caused an economic recession in 1991 and 1992, but it also regained control of the Senate. Or, but, also, but, oh, but two years later, uh, the Republican Party broke the Democrats' uh, 40-year hold on the White House but, oh, but two years later, the Republican Party broke the Democrats' 40-year-old uh, on the White House and re- regained control of the Senate. Yet the continued conflict between the parties also regained control, also regained, hmm? oh, yet the continued conflict between the parties helped propel Clinton to the re-election in 1996. With Republicans in search of someone who could unite the party, Texas Governor George W. Bush campaigned in 2002, in 2000 as a compassionate conservative and eked out a narrow electoral college victory while barely losing the popular vote. He carried every southern state while drawing 83% of the evangelical Christian vote. Throughout this period, other changes in the South led, by, led to a dwindling number of conservatives uh, in this period. Oh, wait, of conservative Democrats serving in Congress uh, and a corresponding increase in the election of conservative Republicans. At the state level, the Republican Party began using the congressional redistricting process to redraw districts to move greater numbers of Democrats into cities, making the Republican Party more competitive in suburban areas. Since the mid-1900s, party control has swung wildly back and forth. Uh, Democrats won back control of the House and Senate in 2006, and in 2008, Republican-nominated Republicans nominated Arizona Senator John McCain, hoping that McCain's experience in Congress, uh, national security credentials, and heroic story of survival as a prisoner of war in Vietnam uh, would appeal to voters. The Democrats nominated Barack Obama, who had been a community organizer and senator prior to to the nomination. Obama took 53% of the popular vote, the best Democratic percentage since 1964. Democrats kept control of the House and Senate um, 
and eventually had majority of 60 votes, had a majority of 60 votes in the Senate uh, to give them even more clout. Mm, I don't like the use of that word there. <laughs> Never, nevertheless, uh, the party's dominance was extremely short-lived. President Obama pushed several measures in, the, in response to the economic downturn of 2008 and 2010, uh, including hundreds of billions of dollars in federal spending and extensions of bailouts to the banking, investment, and automobile industries. These actions led to a political backlash called the Tea Party Movement. Members of the Tea Party were not hostile to all government programs. However, a, Har- however, a Harvard University student uh, found that their opposition to Obama's health care overhaul uh, came, as, came even as members liked programs such as Social Security and Medicare. The Tea Party was credited with helping Republicans regain control of the House in the 2010 elections. The weakened economy and an un- with an unemployment rate stuck at around 8% uh, led Republicans to confidently predict they would recapture the White House in 2012. The Republican Party and its candidate, Mitt Romney, sought to make the elections reference a, re- a referendum on the, public- on the president's handling of the economy. The Democrats portrayed Romney as a wealthy corporate executive with an inability to understand the average Americans. Um, I don't understand the poor. That's a song from uh, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, by the way. Yes, it, yes, it is. That was exactly what I referenced there. Um, Obama won, and Democrats kept their majority of, of, in the Senate. Uh, after the election, the Republican Party decided to take a hard look at how it could do better. The RNC, or uh, Republican National Committee, um, formed a panel of experienced activists who made a series of recommendations, including putting out a positive message and creating a diverse national, nationwide operation of local activists. Despite the lowest overall percentage uh, turnout rate among voters since 1942, Republicans turned out in much greater numbers than Democrats in the 2014 midterms, swinging control of the Senate back to their party. That led the DNC to do its own post-election assessment of how to improve. It called for a better long-term strategy for uh, winning state elections that could help the party redraw future congressional districts. But most of its reports said the party should continue its existing goals of ensuring voting rights and recruiting a diverse set of candidates. How political parties change and adapt. The Democratic and Republican parties are trying to stay relevant in an age of intense polarization. That polarization has grown and has led some voters to participate in politics, and others not. Uh, not just because they, su- uh, they support their party, but out of an intense li- dislike of the other side. In the 2016 election, both party establishments w- witnessed major changes to the party's st- uh, status quo. Sanders, although ultimately unsuccessful in his pursuit of the nomination, challenged Democrats par- uh, the Democratic Party to focus more on issues of economic inequality and the power of Wall Street and the nation's uh, financial institutions. The Trump candidacy may have exposed the deep rupture between the party's corrupt- uh, corporate-backed wealthier donors uh, and its less affluent blue-collar supporters. Many Trump voters share this deep distrust of government and party elites, electing an unconventional candidate for the presidency. At the same time, voters returned the congressional Republicans uh, who did not embrace Trump to the House and Senate. Uh, party loyalist uh, Paul Ryan, who kept his job as Speaker of the House, offered to work with Trump, saying, quote, We are eager to work hand-in-hand with the new administration to advance an agenda to improve the lives of the American people, end quote. Today's Republican Party coalition uh, may well be dominant, but like all party coalitions, it is unstable. For example, fiscal conservatives who want a balanced budget might turn against Republicans who favor tax cuts to raise that deficit. 
Republicans who are social liberals supporting same-sex marriage and the the legalization of recreational marijuana might clash with social conservatives who oppose both policies. Some Republicans uh, favor reducing international trade barriers, while others are more isolationist. Uh, The Democratic Party has its own problems. Even though Obama easily won the election in both 2008 and 2012, Democrats were unable to generate broader enthusiasm for uh, for the party. Uh, this is this made it difficult to recruit successful candidates for lower par- uh, political offices. During Obama's two terms, the Democrats lost seat in, seats in the House, Senate, and state legislatures, as well as more than half of state governorships. By 2016, Democrats control Democrats controlled elected officials uh, offices na- nationwide. Uh, than at any other time since the 1920s. Uh, part of the reason was the re- uh, Republicans' ability to, in many states, to redraw congressional districts after the 2010 census to make it easier for members of their party to win and remain in office. Democrats tend tend to cluster in cities where they can win local elections, but they have less success in congressional or statewide offices. Another reason uh, was continued in, uh, inability of Democrats to turn out their most loyal supporters in midterm elections. When a presidential candidate isn't on the ballot, the Democratic Party is also weakened by the split between those, supported, those who supported Sanders, uh, who seek dramatic change, and the centralist voters who supported Clinton. The landscape is changing dramatically for both Democratic and Republican parties. Both parties must adapt to new technologies and changing demographics if they want to remain relevant in the American national politics. That is the end of section three point, or sorry, fourteen point two. Uh, section fourteen point three: Parties and political campaigns. Parties play a key role in national, state, and local political campaigns. There are several phases to a campaign, each with its own dynamics. First, candidates decide to run, often with the help of party leaders and activists. Second, parties choose a nominee to represent their party uh, during the election. Finally, parties support their nominees during the election campaign. We examined the decision to run for national office, Chapter 4, and the dynamics of political campaigns, Chapter 13, earlier in this book. The nomination process. At the beginning of congressional and presidential campaigns, declared candidates compete with each other in their own party for that party's nomination. Beginning early in the election year, candidates seek the support of party delegates whose, vote, whose votes they will need to secure the party's nomination. State and federal laws set many of the rules governing the nomination process, but most of the details about how things work are hammered out by the parties. Most states hold primary elections in which a state's voters choose delegates who support a particular presidential candidate, see figure 14.3. In congressional primaries, the candidate with the most votes becomes the party's candidate. Some states hold open primaries in which all eligible voters may vote in a party's primary election, regardless of that voter's partisan affiliation. Others hold closed primaries in which only those voters who have registered with a political party can participate. While open primaries encourage undecided and independent voters to participate in choosing a party's nominee, they also follow the possibility that some voters will cast their votes to sabotage a candidate from the opposing party if they see the candidate as a threat to their own preferred candidate. Critics of open primaries contend that only voters registered to a party should have a say in in selecting the party's nominee. It is not fair to allow non-affiliated voters to diminish the voices of the party faithful. Closed primaries produce candidates who are in line with what the party's voters want. Advocates of open primaries say they help make elections more competitive by taking power away from senior party officials who serve as gatekeepers, favoring some candidates over others. 
The problem with politics isn't the money. The problem is the parties themselves, said John Opdyke, the president of Open Primaries, a group seeking to implement the process nationwide. Those favoring open primaries believe closed primaries incentivize candidates to appeal to the party's extremists, leading to nominees who are too far outside the political mainstream. Some states hold caucuses, meetings of eligible voters to select delegates. Caucuses differ from primaries because the voting is done in public instead of by secret ballot. At their most basic level, the caucuses are organized by voting precincts within cities and towns. At a typical precinct, caucus meeting, supported from various campaigns give speeches about why they back their candidate. Then participants break into groups depending on which candidate they support or they indicate that they are still undecided. Before any delegates can be elected, a group has to meet a certain threshold number of votes. Groups try to persuade people to join them to increase their size. Because caucuses have complex rules and are time consuming, they tend to draw fewer participants than primaries, typically attracting those who are more committed to a candidate. In February 2016, more than 186,000 Republicans and 171,000 Democrats took part in the Iowa caucus, a turnout rate of just under 16% of eligible voters. In the first 12 presidential primary election contests that followed that year, the combined average turnout rate was only 17.3% for Republicans and 11.7% for Democrats. Why do some states have primaries while others have caucuses? If a state holds a primary, the state government has to finance it. In return, political parties must abide by state laws governing the process, such as the date of the primary and who can participate. Holding a caucus gives the political parties more flexibility and power over the nomination process. The two major political parties have differed in how they award delegates. The rules continue to change. The Republican Party awards delegates either to the winning candidate statewide or, more commonly, by splitting delegates between winners in the state overall and winners in individual congressional districts. The Democratic Party has tended to award delegates through a proportional system in which delegates are divided based upon total vote share. However, the elite within the Democratic Party is given special representation. Superdelegates are members of the Democratic Party, usually elected officials or party activists, who can support any candidate they choose, regardless of the outcome of the primaries or caucuses in their state. They account for 15% of the total number of delegates. The, Republican, the Republicans designate three delegates from each state based upon their positions within the state party. Unlike delegates selected in primaries and caucuses, they are not pledged to vote for a particular candidate, see figure 14.4. There are risks with either approach to awarding delegates. Awarding delegates through the proportional system used by the Democratic Party tends to push back the date when a candidate wins enough delegates to secure the nomination. Awarding them based on the winner-take-all system used by the Republican Party tends to speed it up. A quicker conclusion to a nomination season benefits a party by allowing it to focus on its efforts on the general election. On the other hand, a rapid conclusion to the process may end the nomination process before some potentially viable candidates have a chance to gain traction with voters. The schedule of primary elections and caucuses affects the outcome of the nomination process. By tradition, Iowa holds the first caucus and then New Hampshire holds the first primary. While neither state has a large number of delegates, their early position gives them a disproportionate amount of attention. Neither state is representative of the demographics of the nation as a whole. Both states are more rural and less ethnic ethnically diverse than the rest of the country. Holding an early caucus or primary gives a state enormous influence over the nominating process, and it attracts candidate and media attention and large amounts of money. A win in an early state helps candidates establish momentum. Issues that are important to specific states may become policies later if a candidate becomes president, and state party leaders have a strong incentive to hold their primary election as early as possible. States front load their primaries or caucuses, pushing them as early in the season as possible. National party leaders set a schedule for state primaries and caucuses and have punished states that jump the line. 
there's an inherent conflict in the nominating process. On the one hand, states have a desire to front load to increase their importance in the nominating process, but the National Party has a conflicting desire to create an orderly series of primary caucuses. In 2012, Florida moved its primary ahead of schedule to January. The RNC punished it by taking away half of its delegates at the National Convention. The final phase of the nomination process is the National Convention, held in the summer of the presidential election year. During the convention, the delegates vote to select the party's nominee, and committees of delegates write the party platform on the issues. For much of American history, national conventions were sources of high drama, with many rounds of delegate voting required to select a nominee. At the national convention, most but not all delegates are pledged to vote for the candidate that voters have chosen in their state. If no candidate gets the number of delegates required to win, more rounds of votes are held until someone does. This process includes much behind-the-scenes courting of delegates to switch their votes and is known as a brokered or contested convention. In recent decades, the nominee has been determined before the convention. Conventions have become more like pep rallies designed to energize and mobilize voters. A key speaking spot at a national convention can be a stepping stone to future prominence on the national stage. In 2004, uh, Barack Obama, then an Illinois state senator and candidate for the U.S. Senate, gave the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention, DNC, which signaled his status as a rising star within the Democratic Party. Party leaders used to play a big role in selecting the nominee, but party elites are losing some of this power. Some candidates are developing their own strategies and raising money independently because they do not believe party leadership is serving their goals. Political scientist John Aldrich says, in such cases, politicians turn elsewhere to seek the means to win. As campaigns have become more candidate-centered, Party elites are losing influence over the nomination process. Parties want to steer the nomination process toward the most electable candidates in the general election, but voters in primaries and caucuses may not select the nominee favorable, favored by the party elite. National party organizations are not as powerful as they used to be, and their role in selecting and supporting candidates for office continues to evolve. That's the end of section 14.3. Okay, finally is section 14.4, third parties. Ooh, yeah, four parties, or third parties. Uh, there is no law requiring a two-party system in the United States, but with a few exceptions, a two-party system has been dominant for most of the nation's history. Many other countries have a multiple-party system, and some have a single-party dominant system. Um, some countries have a proportional representation systems in which citizens vote for parties rather than individuals, and parties are represented in the legislature according to the percentage of the vote they receive. Uh, for example, in proportional representation systems, a party winning 10% of the nationwide vote would be awarded 10% of the seats in the legislature. With a few exceptions, a two-party system has been dominant for most of America's political history. Why? Let's consider a few factors. The United States uses a single-party or single-member plurality system in which voters have a single vote for one candidate. The candidate who gets the most votes, a plurality, in a state or congressional district wins the uh, wins the election even if he her or person supposed to say he or she even if he or she does not have the support of more than 50% of the voters in presidential elections the candidate who wins the popular vote uh, in a state wins all of that state's electoral votes except in Maine and Nebraska uh, this is known as winner take all system the winner-take-all system means that the Democratic and Republican parties uh, win almost every office because a candidate from one of the two major parties always often, almost always receives most of the votes in a district or state. Proponents of the system say that this promotes stability 
and voters can can continue to elect members from the same party that they think are doing a good job in office. But many people live in areas where one party dominates. Conservatives living in districts uh, or states dominated by Democrat party by the Democratic Party don't have much of a voice in politics. The same is true for liberals living in a Republican stronghold. This can discourage people from participating in politics. Minor parties in the 21st century. Although they almost never win office, third parties may influence elections. Third-party candidates often focus on, on a single issue that they think the major parties are not addressing. Sean uh, Willens, a professor for, of history at Princeton University, explains, quote, there will never be an issue that's being neglected, neglected or that is being purposefully excluded from national debate because neither party wants to face the political criticism that it would bring, end quote. Sometimes the two major parties incorporate third-party agendas into their platforms, undercutting uh, undercutting the third party's chances of winning. Third or winner take all uh, feature, the winner take all feature makes it difficult for third party candidates to win votes in, ele- in the electoral college because they rarely win a plurality of the votes within a state. However, sometimes third party candidates are able to win some votes in the electoral college because uh, they are in a popular region. In the nineteen sixty eight election. Uh, George Wallace ran for president as an independent candidate on a platform of favoring segregated blacks and whites, of fa- in favor of sa- segregating blacks and whites. Uh, Wallace took nearly 14% of the vote because he was popular in the South. He won a plurality in four southern states and was awarded their votes in the Electoral College. Twelve years later, John Anderson, an Illinois GOP congressman, ran under the banner of the National Unity Party as a moderate alternative to Democratic president Jimmy Carter, and uh, more conservative than, pres- than Republican Ronald Reagan, and received 6.6% of the vote. Because Anderson's popularity was dispersed, he did not win a plurality in any state and was not awarded any votes in the Electoral College. Businessman H. Ross uh, with the Reform Party on a platform of cutting the federal budget deficit. He captured the he captured nearly nineteen percent of the vote, but did not win any electoral college votes. And eight years later, consumer activist Ralph Nader ran for president under the Liberal Green Party banner. He won two point seven four percent of the popular vote, uh, pulling the votes away from Democratic candidate Al Gore. Sometimes there is a backlash against third party candidates like Nader because their campaigns probably pull votes away from parties part the party most similar to them, uh, and help the opposing party win. This phenomenon discourages people from voting for third parties. The the Democratic and Republican parties hope to discourage third-party candidacies. One way is to prevent third-party candidates from participating in televised presidential debates. To qualify for national televised debates, candidates must be supported by at least 15% of the respondents in five national public opinion polls. Local officials may, uh, may... set stringent uh, requirements for candidates to collect a certain number of signatures before they can appear on a ballot, making it difficult for many third-party hopefuls. During the 2016 election, as the Clinton and Trump campaigns both struggled against heavily negative perceptions, third-party challengers emerged, drawing votes from both. Gary Johnson, the candidate for the Libertarian Party, Jill, uh, Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, and Independent Party candidate Evan Mullen, all vied to establish their respective parties as credible challengers to the Democratic and Republican parties. While Johnson won about 3.3% of the national vote, and Stein uh, won roughly 1%, 
Neither of them presented a serious challenge to Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Uh, figure 4.6 shows how American opinions about the need for viable third parties have varied recently. 2016 and the challenges to mainstream political ideas, or political parties, sorry. As the, pres- as the 2016 presidential nomination season, season progressed, both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump surprised political scientists, political pundits, and their own party leaders uh, with unconventional cam- their unconventional campaigns. Both candidates took, the- took positions that were outside the mainstream of their parties. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump presented challenges to their own party's establishment. The larger story about the election of 2016 may not be... Uh, only about divisions within political parties, but about how both political parties will adapt, or about how both political parties will adapt to the changing nature of political campaigns. That concludes section fourteen point four and the end of chapter fourteen. Cool. And, and also fifteen and sixteen tomorrow are both three sections, so that'll be nice. Nice. Okay, so we don't have too much left. Yeah. Okay. I think this is our shortest session yet. Is it? I think so. I'm well, gonna, no, I the one on Sunday was like 15 minutes. Oh, that's true. That's true. Okay, anyway, I will see you. Okay. Hold on. Before you leave, I got to...